Yes, ma'am. Uh, Corey and I were discussing this with a friend last night, but and I can't wrap my head around it, that if you're on an airplane and that airplane crashes, that it was all those people's time. I just, I can't get it. Let me ask you another question. Do you have the same problem with the global flood where God killed everyone on earth at the same time? Why is the airplane more troubling than the flood? I no, I, no, and I don't, no, I don't, no, I don't mean that's no, 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 no. Let me be clear. No, you ask, no, you ask a great question. I'm just saying, we look at things like the flood and we never look closely, and we're so used to them that this flood looks. You just think of the ark and the animals sticking out of the window. Then you got to picture hundreds, thousands of people drowning, treading water, and slowly going under, and what a absolute horrific sight that would be. And God's, there's no question God said, I did that, right? And we go, okay. And so, no, I, I get it. I get the tension. And we hear about terrible things, and the closer they are to home, the closer they are to us, the harder it is for us to wrap our heads around it. All, all I'm saying is, it's probably, I think, more because we've never really looked at the statements God says in um, in Scripture at these other things. So I, I didn't mean to give you a trite or or, or, or in any ways cheap answer. But like God says at one time clearly, I will kill every human being on earth, except for six. Eight. Eight. <laughs> See, they keep me accountable. They don't get away with anything. Um, six is part of eight. Okay. And yeah, that's, I mean, the, the, the real, here's the, here's the real thing though, if you want to press even further than the flood, and this is, this is something I don't want to say lightly because um, I don't ever want to talk about hell flippantly. But if God, is, if God rightly can send a person to hell, and he doesn't, and he gives them months and years of time on earth, and he determines for his purposes they're going to die in a plane crash, what wrong has he done them? He could have sent them to hell years ago. You got, you got to start with the sinful people who deserve hell, and then everything God does that's not hell is grace. You, you got to start there, as opposed to the nice people who deserve the nice vacation. And we, have, we keep forgetting, but we got to go back to that. Like, God is fully prepared to send this person to hell. And he isn't. But their plane crashes. Okay, that's, and I don't want to make the plane crash not a horrific event. At the same time, I mean, what you get in Scripture is God declaring through multiple prophets, I am going to wreck and destroy Jerusalem. That Nebuchadnezzar's coming through, he's going to tear it apart. And it's God doing it. God's saying, I'm wielding Babylon like a hammer in my hand. And there are chapters upon chapters of Scripture, the entire book of Lamentations, Big whole chunks of Ezekiel and Jeremiah, Psalms, lamenting the horror of that event. And we don't, again, want to let the one truth rule out the other. As if because God caused, planned, brought to pass the destruction of Jerusalem, we need to sit there and smile and be like, well, that was good. No, the script, the same scripture that insists God was sovereign over the destruction of Jerusalem, insists that God is sovereign, that God's people and his spirit in his people weeps and laments. Where's the Tower of Siloam in Luke? It's Luke 14. Go to Luke 14. I I know for a fact the statement I made last week that probably caused the most um, discussion was God's relationship to 9-11. And I did that intentionally, again, because 
it, it, it never ceases to amaze me. We can talk about God destroyed the Babylonians, and God had Israel wipe out the Canaanites, and God wiped out the Amalekites, and God destroyed Babylon with the Medo-Persians, and then the Greeks destroyed them. And we go, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And God is in some sense brought to pass, ordained, and I'm comfortable saying did, 9-11. And we go, whoa, you can wreck Babylon, Jerusalem, Israel, the Persians, but it's because until it gets close to home and we're just looking like, like a voyeur through the window, it's other stuff, it doesn't get personal. So I did intentionally say something provocative just because until it hits home, and we're looking at this, the danger is we're just tourists looking at it. Um, but in Luke, let me get four, is it 14? I think it's 14. No, it's not. Where's the Tower of Siloam? Luke 13. Okay, thank you. Funny enough, there's another tower that fell in, in the Gospels. And people asked Jesus what to make of it. And I think his answer is very instructive. In fact, I, I remember just after, I mean, I remember right where I was when 9-11 happened. I was, I was in my freshman year at the Master's College. And I remember being in a daze in my RA's room watching that second plane hit the buildings, watching people jump out. It was, it was a horrific event. And nothing I've said about my belief that, that, as Amos says, if calamity comes upon a city, has not the Lord done it? which is where I get the word did from, just reconjugate done. Um, but that's not a horrific event. And Scripture would agree that's a horrific event. Like I said, the Psalms are filled with laments. But um, John MacArthur got to go on Larry King that night to talk about it. And he used this exact example of the Tower of Siloam. Uh, so verse chapter 13, verse 1. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifice. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you all will likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they are worse offenders than all those who lived in Jerusalem? No, but I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You see, the, the Jews are trying to understand why, why would something terrible like this tower falling happen to you know, nice guys, nice people. Maybe, maybe they were all secretly really wicked, and that's why it happened. I mean, because that, that's, that's the thought of the day. So when the, the, the man born blind, the disciples said to Jesus, was it his sin or his parents' sin? Jesus said, neither. Yet Jesus insists that these are wicked people who are headed to destruction. He says, no, the lesson from the tower falling is you need to repent or you're going to face judgment too. The lesson from the tower is at any moment, God might require you to stand before him and give an account. That's the lesson of the tower collapsing. They're neither worse people than you, nor are they nicer people than you. Judgment, every one of us is a, is a hair's breadth from standing before God and giving an account. That's the lesson of that. And if you want to know what good might God work through an event like 9-11, I'll tell you from first-hand experience, at least for a couple of weeks and months, the media was willing to use moral categories, talk about evil. Ecclesiastes tells us that it's better to go to a funeral home, a house of mourning, than a house of feasting, than a wedding parlor. Why? Wedding party. Because in the funeral home, you consider the end of your ways. So, so part of it is the good, I'm sure, of people dealing with real questions. It may have been a judgment. I mean, certainly we've killed enough babies in this country to warrant that. I mean, if God can destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, at a certain point you've got to figure he owes them an explanation for why he hasn't wrecked us. I mean, how many millions of children have we killed in this country? I don't know. I'm not saying I know what he's doing. 
And it may be elements of both. It may be elements of judgment and elements of mercy causing people to think about and calling upon him. I don't know. I just know that he has purposes in it and they're good. Um, and that we don't deserve better. We don't. We deserve hell. He didn't give us hell that day. He gave us grace. Um, a severe, frightening, horrific grace, but grace nonetheless, because it wasn't hell. Anyway, heavy, heavy stuff, I know. Okay, that was the one I wanted to pick up from last week, but questions from this week or last week? Yes, Stacy. And the mic's coming. Years ago, I had a Bible study leader who was teaching us through Romans 9, and he was talking about how God has created the vessel for honorable and also the one for dishonorable use. And he quickly pointed out that the vessel pointed for dishonorable use, we can't look at that as God purposely creates someone purposely, uh, for destruction. He said that was called like double predestination. And he said, we, we don't teach that. We don't. Mm. Anyway, so what, next what's week's, your... Next week's... I'm not going to steal the thunder. Next okay. week's thunder. Next week... <laughs> <laughs> blah, 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 blah. Next week's message that Pastor Daniel's giving deals the very first thing he's going to deal with. He's going to pick up right off where I left off in, in, in uh, Romans 9. God hated Esau. Did God make Esau to hate him? Is that why God made him? Did God make Esau to go to hell? And he's going to try to answer that question. And he's going to disagree with John Piper. <gasps> Ooh. Um, so I'll, I don't want to spoil the thunder. But no, next week, the whole point of next week's message is to deal with some of these questions and deal with some of these issues. And, and so wait a second, does that mean and that, that whole thing? So um, I won't answer it simply because that's Daniel's whole major point. Okay. Um, he's going to try to cover a little bit more topics, but the more he's working on it, the more he's told me, I think I'm pretty much just dealing with that. <laughs> so um, I don't want to ruin that for you. So that's a great question. That is absolutely a question we expected people would ask, which is why the third message is that. The fourth and final message will simply be, okay, practical applications. So what? Um, how should this affect my life as a Christian? Or is this all just esoteric pie-in-the-sky stuff? Questions? All the way in the back, Zach Hubna. Um, for the kind of the beginning part about depravity and our inability mm. to do anything good, um, like I, I understand everything about how you said that because we're sinners that we sin and so we're we're guilty of of sinning, but. I don't know if it's because of um, just you know my own sinfulness and corrupt thinking, or because of the culture that I've been raised in. But yeah. it's hard for me to think about God requiring people to do something that they have an inability to do. Yes. So since we don't have any good in us, that mm. we have the ability on our own to have faith and to obey God. That um, just it makes me like the example that came to my mind. I know this isn't. A perfect example because uh, but it's like a person who's born lame they can't walk and God's telling them that the requirement is they have to walk a mile 
or something. Mm. I don't know that's not quite the same because it's more like God's requiring obedience and we're choosing no. disobedience. You, you, have, you have put your finger right on the crux of the problem. Um, this, is the, this was the controversy um, in the 4th century with Augustine and Pelagius precisely on this issue. And I would give the five-minute answer now and would point you to the 55-minute answer from, December, from January 4th, 2015, Original Sin and the Depravity of Man. And I'm, I'll, I'll post that on Facebook um, if you want to link to it because it, it really is the much bigger treatment on it. Um, we just did a series on Genesis 1, 2, and 3 in the fall, and I basically want to do an extra part, the consequence of the fall, the so what of Adam's sin. But in the 4th century, Augustine's bishop in the church in South in northern Africa, and he prays one day, Lord, command us to do as you will and give us the grace to do what you command. And Pelagius um, gets offended at that, precisely with what you just said. How can God command us to do something that we aren't able to do? And, and so as this controversy broke out in the church, ultimately known as Pelagianism, that's how you get named a heresy after yourself, just, you know, um, all the heresies just named after the people who started them. But uh, you absolutely want to be sympathetic for Pelagius because he's trying to defend in his views the, the righteousness and the justice of God. He's saying it would be unjust of God to call us and require us to do something we cannot do. Okay? Pause. Let me just set this aside for a second. Does God demand perfect obedience and perfection and sinlessness? Can anybody do that? So how is the same problem not also evident there? No, no, I'll try to deal with it in a second. I just want to point out it's not just a problem of election. Pelagius insisted, in fact, that people are born good. That's the only way that God could be just in condemning us, was that if each one of us was made fully capable of doing good, and then each one of us chose to do evil. It was condemned in the 4th century. The, what, the version that was alive and well today in the West and in America is called semi-Pelagianism. And if you've ever heard that each one of us has got a good dog and a bad dog, each one of us has got a measure of good and bad, that's semi-Pelagianism. The notion that we have good and evil in us. We're born not dead but sick. We're born um, with some spiritual life. And that that is the most dominant view in the Western church. I mean, they don't call it that. But that's the view of people. So people have some good and everybody's got some good and some bad in them. And you just got to come to face, first of all, with the biblical data. I'll try to deal with your objection. I just want to come at it two layers. One, I think the Bible insists we're totally depraved. And so even if God doesn't explain how that works, I think we need to submit ourselves to it. The, the danger with topics like this is this. There's two ways you can come at the Bible. You can come at the Bible from underneath the Bible or from on top of the Bible. And the difference is this. You can come at Scripture and say, I refuse to accept this until you can explain it and make, have it make sense to me. Well, I meet plenty of people like that. Or you can say, Lord, I want to believe whatever it is you've said. I would like to understand it. <laughs> I would like very much. This is difficult. But you're, So the first point is, I think the Bible clearly teaches that. No one does good. No one seeks for God. There's none righteous. No, not one. They've all become worthless Statements like that, everyone who does evil things hates the light, doesn't come to the light. I, I think biblically it's there. So then if we say, okay, Lord, your word teaches that we are totally sinful through and through. There's no good in us. How then does that work with justice? Which I think is then a fair question to ask if we submit to the first point. 
the, the insistence on the fall is that we are really guilty in Adam. So the crucial difference in your analogy of the man being born lame and God requiring us to walk is this. If the reason I'm lame is because I broke my own legs, it's my fault. And the Bible insists we have real culpability and real sin in Adam. Go, go to Romans 5.12. This is where that message in, from, the, from January 4th or 5th starts is dealing with this and a much fuller treatment. So... Um, so Romans 5 therefore verse 12 just as sin came into the world and through sin one man and death through sin and so death spread to all men because all sinned there it is in simplicity all sinned when Adam sinned it's not all are found guilty of sin when Adam sinned all sinned the original sin, as it's been understood in the Reformation and sins in Protestant Christianity, and even in Roman Catholicism, is not that we have guilt from Adam, but we have sin in Adam. We're guilty of sin in Adam. Um, I'll jump ahead to verse uh, 16. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification of life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners not guilty of sin, made sinners. By one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And the, the Bible, I think, there's two ways people try to resolve this. Um, I, I, I believe that based on the so that, just as language of Romans 5, Christ is our representative, right? He's a legal or federal. When I say federal, I mean legal representative, right? And because of his actions for his people, his actions are attributed to them. They're credited to them. We, we get that in a legal system. If our president goes to war with another nation, you and I are at war with that nation, are we not? His actions affect us. If he, if he signs a treaty, we're bound to it. If he incurs a debt, we must pay it off. And you may not like that he did that, but you recognize the ruler of a nation, of a people, a legal head, can do those things. Now, of course, Americans... No taxation without representation. I didn't vote for Adam. So let's just take it a step by step. If we had voted for Adam, there wouldn't be a problem, right? If we said, hey, Adam's going to be our representative, and whatever he does, we're good with that. And then Adam eats the fruit in the garden, because that's how God treats us. What God in his wisdom has chosen to do is to make Adam a representative. Now, we can just either trust that God chose a fair, right, and good representative, or he uh, loaded the deck. Stacked, no, loaded the dice or stacked the deck. There it is. Sorry, I'm mixing my metaphors. Um, and so I would submit to you that if you were in the garden in Adam's place, you would have done exactly what he did and faster that God picked the perfect representative for us. But that's the, that's the treatment. And we get this backwards. Christ is our representative. Now, we're fine. We love receiving his righteousness unearned. We love what he did. Count that to me. We call it imputation. His actions credited to us. We love that. We love the federal headship of Jesus and the imputation of his deeds to us. Paul insists, just as so then, that's how Adam works. But if that's true... We really are guilty. So it's not, it's not fair or accurate to construe a scenario. It's not my fault. I was born blind. This is why I'm trying to insist. No, we're the people who gouged our eyes out. And so, yeah, we're left unable, but it's our fault we're unable. 
That, that's the Bible insists. I know it's I know it's tough, but you're you're gonna either have to end up at full-on Pelagianism where everybody's born good, and not only good, Pelagius not only had to insist we're born good, everyone's born fully capable of perfectly obeying God's law. Because in his view, that's the only conceivable way God could justly punish us for not perfectly obeying his law. And it's consistent at least. I'll give him that. And I get the dilemma he's trying to avoid. The problem is it's not biblical. Um, so and anyway, you've, you've hit a great question. That's my five-minute treatment. Go check out Original Sin and the Depravity of Man. Let's talk. Do you have more questions than that? You see you got the mic in this movie. Yeah, um, just oh. kind of uh, as you were talking, that kind of reminded me like, um, one of the main parts that was confusing is when you were talking about like you know we're the people who have gouged our eyes out or broken our own legs or um, you know like the addict who has repeatedly given themselves over to something and I see that like as a progression but like I was trying to follow that back to like the very first time that we chose to sin and it, it doesn't like make quite as much sense or you know it's like if someone's repeatedly done it over and over again then well, yeah, they're guilty. They've you know done that to themselves, but going back to the very first time, um, and they can't not do that the very first time or something. Then it starts to make. I struggle with like seeing as much guilt there yeah. or as much uh, responsibility. But I think what you're saying is that that's connected back to Adam yes. and the very first sin. Yes, so. and God saying that in Adam we sinned, not just mm-hmm. are guilty of sin. Yeah. But we sinned in Adam. And, and no, sure, there's a, there's, a, there's a mystery there. I, again, I'm fine with that. But we at least see it in Christ, the same thing. In Christ, we are righteous. And everyone loves that. Everyone's like, that is cool. Dig that. God's saying Adam was your representative. Um, now, I know there's another way of resolving it. Some people think Adam is what's called a seminal head, the genetic head of the race, and that sin gets passed on through procreation. Um, that's not heretical or anything. I, I just think that the just as so then language of Romans 5 leads to the legal federal notion. But those are the two main approaches to deal with original sin, seminal headship, federal headship. Um, the only significant difference would be this. In the, the seminal view, you got sin from your parents, you got it from their parents, you got it from their parents, all the way back up to Adam. In, in the federal view, you got your sin directly from Adam, as did everybody else. Um, the good guys are on different sides. I just see the just as so then language lining up. Certainly everyone agrees Christ is a federal and not a seminal head. So that's, that's to me the point. But those are the two ways people get that. I also like the notion that we're more directly, I sinned in Adam, not my great, 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 great grandparents did, but me, I'm guilty in him. Um, yeah. Okay. Yes. Question. Hold on. Microphone. Okay, so I think what you're saying is it's kind of a package deal. If we would like to choose to accept the gift in Jesus, we also have to accept that Adam is the sin part of it. And you yeah. can't have one without the other. That is precisely what I'm saying. And I think that's precisely what Paul's saying. Go to Romans 5 again and notice the just as so then language. There, the first Adam and the last Adam is how he'll refer to them in the same, a similar passage in 1 Corinthians 15. So... Um, verse 16, 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification of life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. There it is. 
just as so then, in the same way. And so we can't cry foul for half of that equation. We can't, you know, it's, it's equally, if it's, if it's a bad deal, it's a bad deal on both parts. It can't just be a bad deal and I don't like it. Simeon. First Corinthians 15, 20. 22, 15, 20, yeah. He does the similar, in First Corinthians 15, he does the similar, just as, so then, I'll read it. Um, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. Um, no, no, 521 actually. For as by man came death, by a man is come the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all be made alive. It's a shorter just as though, but it's a similar contrast between Adam and Christ. Um, both representative heads of a, of a people. Both of them, their actions imputed to their rep- the group they represent. Um, that, that's how we, we, we understand Adam and what he did in light of Christ and what he did. So, no, you, you've summed it up perfectly, and I'm just multiplying words. Other questions? Amy Moore. So, part B of the outline was talking about um, just the inability, natural man will never want to choose to come to Christ yeah. um, without... Um, spiritual intervention, right? right. Um, and it said our desires always govern all of our choices. And so I was thinking about Romans 7 when Paul's talking about, you know, I don't do what I want to do, I do what I hate to do, and he goes yeah. on and on back and forth. So um, would you then t- also say that when we are struggling and entrapped in things, we, even if it's not sinful things per se, but it's just not the best things, and I'm thinking yeah. specifically in how I spend my time. Like how, yeah. you know, in, in a given day, am I going to read my Bible before I cook my kids breakfast or whatever? You know, there's a constant tension for me, like wanting to get my things done and not, you know, having that be the priority, and and that nags at me. Like I want that to be the very first thing I do, and you know, whatever. Yeah. And so. I'm constantly going, man, I'm not doing what I want to do. I'm doing what I hate doing. That is putting, making my kids breakfast before reading my Bible or whatever. And so <laughs> um, would then you say that even that type of thing is going to require spiritual intervention for me to conquer my... Um, yeah. It, oh, no, sorry. No. If, I was, if I was to... This will be the last answer because we're already five minutes over time. Good grief. Time flew with the meeting and everything. Um, if I were to make a more nuanced statement, and, and the notes don't allow for me to do a paragraph, I would say, in any given moment, we have a, we have a, a spectrum of sometimes conflicting desires, but we will choose in that moment the desire that we most want. And so, and we may immediately regret it later. I mean, how many times have we eaten some junk food, man, you really wanted it, and 10 minutes later, like, why did I do that? I'm gonna die. You know, um, and, and immediately regret it. And then the next day you're at the gym, you're like, why? You know, we, and so when Paul's talking about the thing I don't want to do, but in the moment he does it, he wants to do it. Make no mistake. In the moment when I decide to have second dinner at 1230 in the morning, which never happens. I just thought I'd make that up as an example. Um, I wanted to do that. And the second the guy clicks on the link on the website, he wanted to do that more than anything. He may moments later regret that. He may moments later think differently. But in that moment, that's what he most wanted to do. And, and Jonathan Edwards, in his book, The Freedom of the Will, argues that if that's not the case, he's actually not free. 
If you were to say, why did you do it? And he said, what I most wanted to do was this other thing, but I didn't do that. Then the reason you did it wasn't you. You're not free. Something other than you made that choice because what you wanted to do was this other thing. So Jonathan Ebers will go so far as to say, you must choose according to your greatest desire in the moment, um, else you're not free. So the irony being Luther writes the bondage of the will in response to Erasmus of Rotterdam, speaking about sins total bent towards, the will's total bent towards sin, and Edwards writes the freedom of the will, and he's arguing the exact same thing. That's the whole point. You get to do what you want, but that's the problem when all you want is evil continually. What are you going to do? Okay, we got a break. We got two more weeks. We got some books you can read. I'd recommend go back, listen to the um, ABF from last week, message from last week. Thank you for being patient this morning. God bless.